Uh, we are continuing our study through our church's statement of faith, and we are nearing the end of the section on Jesus. I'm going to read it right uh, through now, and uh, the underlined portion there is what we're going to be covering this morning. It says, We believe that Jesus the Christ is God the Son, that He eternally existed without any beginning. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and rule them righteously. Jesus became human through the virgin birth while simultaneously keeping all His divine essence. Jesus is the perfect, sinless God-man who voluntarily died on a cross as the sacrificial Lamb of God to pay the debt of sin for all who repent and believe on Him. Three days after His death, Jesus rose bodily from the dead, and He is now at the right hand of God the Father the head and the head of the church. Jesus eternally lives as the Savior, prophet, priest, and King of all the redeemed. His victory over death and His bodily resurrection assure victory and a future resurrection for all in Him. Jesus was, will return in power and glory to establish his kingdom on this earth at his second coming to judge the world in righteousness and to fulfill God's redemptive plan. And so that is uh, the underlying portion there is what we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father and he is our prophet, priest, king. I'll talk about the threefold office of Christ. And uh, we're going to cover those in a different order, though. We're going to start with prophet, then king. And then we'll finish with priest. And all three of those offices are specific ways that Jesus mediates <clears throat> between us and the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the perfect go-between. He's the ideal mediator between us and the Father because Jesus is God become a human. Yeah, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's three offices of prophet, prophet, priest, and king. All three of those offices are uh, mediatorial, meaning that uh, they're go-betweens between us and God. Right? Prophets came and they, they gave us God's words. So they're, they're representing God to humans. Uh, priests, of course, would go from humans to God. They would represent uh, humanity. In the case of Israel, they would represent the nation as they went and offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And then the king was supposed to be the one who ruled over the people according to the will of God. And so all three are mediatorial uh, offices between God and man. We're going to talk first about Jesus as our prophet. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote in his little book, Who is Jesus? Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophet, for the most part, was a spokesman, an agent of revelation by which God, instead of speaking directly from heaven to the congregation of Israel, uh, put his words into the mouths of men. And so the prophets, their job primarily was to give people God's words, to say, thus says the Lord, right? If you read through any of the prophets, you'll find that phrase over and over. Uh, and so another way of, of saying that is they were speaking to the people for God. Uh, God was speaking through the prophets. And in Hebrews 1 verse 1, we're told, uh, we'll see in these first couple of verses that Jesus is uh, the ultimate prophet, the, the fulfillment of that office. Long ago, uh, the author says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus is our prophet. He comes uh, giving us the word of God from the father. Jesus himself said this in John 12. Uh, Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father 
has told me. And so Jesus is our prophet. He comes giving us the words of God the Father uh, to us humans. And then after he leaves earth, he continues to speak through his 12 apostles. Uh, he said in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus leaves the scene, uh, the Holy Spirit comes, and through the Spirit, Jesus speaks to the apostles who then write Scripture. And so what we're saying in all of this is that basically the entire New Testament is God speaking to us through Jesus as a prophet. Okay, so that's in the past. Now, let's talk about what Jesus is doing now. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote in his book, Gentle and Lowly, many of us, I'm sorry, for many of us, our functional Jesus isn't really doing anything now. Uh, everything we need to be saved, we tend to think, is already accomplished. But that is not how the New Testament presents the work of Christ. Uh, I think he's right about that. Many Christians tend to think uh, what Jesus did for us is all in the past. Uh, he died on the cross, he rose again, and so we're saved because of what he did way back then. Uh, but if you ask Christians, what, what is he doing now? I think some of us kind of have this idea, he's just kind of up there chilling, you know, <laughs> waiting until uh, the end of time, not really doing much. But that view is totally missing the next two offices of Christ, which are that of prophet and king. I'm sorry, uh, king and priest. Uh, first of all, Jesus is our king. I want to begin here by reading the first section of the book of Acts, which is the, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, which we've been studying. It's the same author, same recipient. It's just a continuation of the story. So Luke begins uh, the Gospel of Luke by basically showing us what Jesus did on earth, and then Acts is the rest of the story after he leaves. So Acts 1 verse 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, talking about Luke's Gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So after the resurrection, Jesus, he's with the apostles for 40 days, and then he gives them um, this last-minute teaching on the kingdom. Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. By the way, uh, Bible trivia, how many days was it? I'll be really impressed if somebody knows this. Uh, after Jesus leaves, he ascends to heaven. How many days was it before Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes? Any guesses? <laughs> 10. Okay, 10 days. Because uh, you notice it says there that Jesus was with the apostles after the resurrection for 40 days. Okay, Pentecost means 50th day. And so it's 50 days after the resurrection that the Holy Spirit's outpours. So you've got a 10 day window there. So he ascends and he says, Stay in Jerusalem. Uh, in just a little while, the Holy Spirit's going to come be poured out on you. Uh, verse 6, when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the, uh, to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, 
and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so that's the ascension of Jesus. He's carried up to heaven. And as he goes up, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. This is uh, very key to what we're going to be talking about next. So where Jesus is currently and where he went at the ascension is the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down at the Father's right hand. Um, Matthew 16, verse 19. There is a textual question about this passage, but with that asterisk, I'll read it anyway. It says, uh, Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, Stephen, when he was stoned, you remember he was uh, gazing up into heaven and he saw the glory of God, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, uh, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Now, why does this matter that Jesus is at the right hand of God? Uh, because of Psalm 110. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 110, uh, I would say this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And it's not just my opinion. It happens to be the most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament. It's not even close. Uh, the apostles and Jesus quote this text over and over and over again. Okay, so let's read this. Uh, Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Lord, or Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is God the Father speaking to Jesus, and he says, Sit at my right hand. <clears throat> Notice the rest of it, though. Uh, Sit at my right hand for how long? until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father at his ascension, and from that day until today, and all the way until Jesus returns, God the Father is making his enemies his footstool. Uh, the kingdom of God is advancing, it's conquering nations, and the rule of Jesus is seen more and more until the day that he returns. Uh, let's keep reading verse 2. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so this is the imagery of Jesus reigning over the kingdom of God at the right hand of the Father. And it says there, he will rule at first in the midst of his enemies. Okay, so when, when, when Christ first ascends and takes his seat at that right hand of the Father, uh, most of the world is very hostile to Christianity. The Romans were killing Christians, destroying their Bibles, very much so trying to stop this movement. And yet, the rule of Christ continued to, to advance. Okay, and it says there, he's going to rule there until God the Father makes all his enemies his footstool, which means, uh, it's speaking of all the earth being in subjection to our king. And that happens before Jesus returns, because it says, sit here until this happens. Uh, you're going to be reigning here until I've made your enemies your footstool. And so when it comes to Jesus being our king, as we've said many times, the kingdom of God is the realm in which Jesus rules and it encompasses all who are in subjection to him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a subject in his kingdom. If you uh, have a question about that, Colossians 3 is a really good passage. I don't have it written down there. Uh, Colossians 3, I believe it's maybe 14. Uh, that talks about when we repent and believe, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Uh, so being a part of God's kingdom simply means being a Christian. And that kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, really began at the moment when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Uh, when Jesus was on trial in Luke 22, we read, uh, the, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, uh, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. 
But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Which means Jesus is seated there and he's going to reign over all the earth. The, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout all the world. That's uh, Matthew 24, 14, right? The, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached throughout the whole world uh, before Christ returns. And the earth is going to be as full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Every knee will be uh, in subjection, will bow in subjection to King Jesus. And at that point, he will leave the throne and return. So he sits there until this has taken place. Then he comes and takes his seat on the throne in Jerusalem. And so the prophecy in Psalm 110, again, one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament, just looking at the way it's quoted so frequently in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Peter on the day of Pentecost <clears throat> in Acts 2, it says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so again, he is ruling at the right hand of the Father. He's going to stay there at the right hand of God the Father until all of his enemies are subjected to him. And this is explicitly stated in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a text that we studied last week some. Uh, Paul says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus rose from the dead, and when, when he returns, there's going to be another resurrection. All the saints in, uh, in Christ, uh, you know, when we die, our bodies, of course, are, are kept here on earth. And, and when Christ returns, our spirit rejoins with our bodies, we'll be resurrected. Okay, but notice the timing of this. When he comes, then we'll be resurrected. Verse 24 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay, so when does that end come? It's the second coming of Christ. When Jesus returns, at that point, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after having already destroyed every rule, authority, and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Again, quoting Psalm 110. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, many Christians have this backwards. Uh, we've been taught in American Christianity largely that Jesus is going to come when the world is in a terrible state and he comes and kills everybody. And, uh, and then, you know, years later, maybe he sets up a kingdom. But what, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus will reign from heaven until every authority, every rule, every power on earth is put under his feet. Where The world is in subjection to Christ. He stays at the right hand of the Father until that happens. Then he comes, raises the dead, and delivers the kingdom to God the Father. The last enemy of death is defeated by the resurrection. And so the author of Hebrews says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower. Uh, I'm sorry, a for a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then notice this little last line, uh, kind of an explanation in case you're getting confused. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay, so Jesus, yes, he is ruling right now as king. Everything is being put under subjection to Christ. But obviously it hasn't happened fully yet. 
Uh, the kingdom grows, as Jesus said, like a mustard seed, little by little, until it becomes a huge tree that overspreads the earth. And right now we're in that period where the kingdom is growing, but we've got a long ways before it's completed and the earth is in submission to Christ. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, At this very moment, the Lord God omnipotent reigns with his Son at his right hand in the seat of imperial authority. To be sure, the kingdom is not yet consummated. That is future. However, it has been inaugurated. He reigns in power, possessing all authority in heaven and earth. His kingdom is invisible, but no less real. It is left to his church to make his invisible kingdom visible. And so when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was fulfilling Psalm 110. He was taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, and that means his kingdom was beginning. Uh, Jesus' ascension to heaven was essentially his coronation. It was then that he was given all authority in heaven and earth to rule over humanity. This is what he says in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Uh, I've been granted the authority to rule and reign over everyone, therefore, go. Because of that promise of the Father, go and make disciples of all nations. Go reach the world with the gospel. And we're going to do it. Okay? He's not leaving the right hand of the Father until that happens. And so the reality that Jesus is king, that his kingdom will grow and successfully spread until all the world is in subjection to him, that promise is the foundation of why we go and spread the gospel. We don't just go, we therefore go. Right? He doesn't just say, go and tell everybody. No, he says, I have all authority. Uh, I'm fulfilling Psalm 110. All enemies will be subjected to me because of that promise. Therefore, go and conquer the world. Go reach the nations with the gospel. And we can be confident that our mission ultimately will be successful. He will reign until all his enemies are subjected. Every rival authority and power will be brought under the lordship of Christ. And then he comes, he defeats the last enemy death by raising us back to life. This is why Second Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We wait with confidence uh, that this world will be a place of righteousness in the end when Jesus is ruling over everyone. And so that is uh, Jesus as our king, I do have one last thing I wanted to get to, which was the priesthood of Jesus. I do, I'll take a few minutes for questions on that. Any questions? Anything that pops up in your mind? Nothing. Okay. All right, we'll move on. Jesus as our priest. So we've seen he's, he's prophet. He comes speaking to us the word of God. He's king, reigning and ruling now, and will continue to until uh, his, uh, the end of time when he comes and reigns physically on earth. Now we'll see Jesus as our high priest. Psalm 110, that, that great chapter, verse 4, gives us another important angle of what it means that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. Again, he's speaking to Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in the same context, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and, and he's king over all of his kingdom, but he also is functioning as our priest. Uh, he represents us to the Father. R.C. Sproul again says, Unlike the Old Testament prophets who faced the people when speaking to God, the Old Testament priests faced God and had their backs to the people. 
Uh, like the prophet, the priest was a spokesman, but he spoke for the people rather than to them. He made intercession on behalf of the people and prayed for them. Additionally, the priest offered sacrifices to God for the people. And so the priests were representatives of the people of Israel to God. They would be the ones that would go into the most holy place in the temple and, uh, and, and represent the people to God. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, Hebrews 5.1, this is a great kind of verse for a job description of what a priest did. Uh, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So you see two primary jobs there. First, to act on behalf of men in, in their relations to God. And then second, to offer sacrifices for sins. And the book of Hebrews explains how these Old Testament priests and the sacrificial system was a shadow of the reality in Jesus. It was all pointing to him as the ultimate high priest. Hebrews 7 verse 21 says, This one was made a, high, uh, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sw- sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Where's he quoting from? Psalm 110 again. Uh, verse 22, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Those priests in the Old Testament, uh, they kept dying, and so they kept having to be replaced. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Uh, Notice, not only is Jesus our priest, Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed. He offered up himself for our sins. And so because of that, he is able to save us forever because he lives forever. Uh, Every time that we sin, Jesus can appeal to the sacrifice that was made on the cross to cover our sins. That is the ground for our uh, assurance, our security, and the fact that we are saved forever. We know that we cannot lose our salvation because Jesus paid the debt of sin for all time. And he is our priest who will never die and will continually intercede for us and apply the sacrifice that he made to our sins. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse, starting in verse 11, this is one of the best passages in Scripture, I believe, on assurance of salvation. Hebrews 10, verse 11, Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, Psalm 110. It just keeps popping up over and over. Uh, Verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that one sacrifice he made on the cross is continuing to be applied to us every time that we sin. Uh, In other words, We're never going to run out of grace in Christ. His sacrifice covers all sins, and he will continually intercede for us. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and will write them on their minds, 
Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a high priest, uh, sorry, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, the, the point there in that text essentially is you can never lose the this, this salvation that you have because Jesus offered once for all a perfect sacrifice that covers all sins, and he is your forever high priest who will never die, uh, who will never retire, and he will continually apply the sacrifice that he made to your sins. And so because of that, we hold fast to our confession without wavering. Uh, we can draw near with full confidence that we will never uh, lose our forgiveness and the salvation that Christ gave us. Uh, John T. Rhodes, he wrote a book uh, called Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. I can't really recommend it. Overall, I wasn't too helped by it. But there were a few parts in there that were really good. I'm going to quote them here. Uh, intercession and atonement are therefore tied to one another. It is because of the atonement that the intercession is not just Jesus asking for a favor of his Father, uh, hoping for a positive response. No, he is able to rightfully ask that our sins be forgiven because our debt has been paid. So because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, he can come as our high priest, and, and, and there is no uh, chance, in other words, of him not being able to intercede successfully for us. He's paid that full debt. I hope by now you have a, a great appreciation for not just the work Jesus did on the cross for your salvation, but the ongoing work of applying his death to your sins. Uh, it is the greatest news you'll ever hear that Jesus is your priest, that he is your representative to God the Father. First John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the perfect mediator between us and God. Uh, he is a man, yet he is God. He never sinned, yet he experienced temptation, and he can sympathize with our weakness. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We can come boldly to the Father in prayer because Jesus is our high priest. Uh, last verse here, Romans 8 verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is... Uh, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus being at the right hand of the Father means he's, he's in that position of authority. He's reigning over the earth, but also means he's there interceding for us. Uh, whenever we sin, he's, he is there talking to God the Father, saying, hey, forgive them, I paid their debt. And he's continually advocating for us to God the Father. Uh, one final kind of summary quote from Rhodes' book. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. 
Because only in Jesus do God and man clasp hands in friendship. And therefore, only if we are united to him can we experience the benefits of his work. At the end of the day, salvation is not a gift from Jesus. It is the gift of Jesus. What God gives us is his son. And so Jesus is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king, and he is our savior. Any questions? Catherine. We don't pray to Jesus, we pray to God the Father. Yes, Jesus intercedes for us. Uh, that's not speaking so much of prayer in that sense, that's more so talking about interceding for our sins. And so he's the high priest that would go and offer the sacrifice for sins. Um, he's the go-between between us and the Father. So when we sin, Jesus is our advocate. Uh, as far as the in prayer, if you're talking about speaking to God the Father, um, that would be more so the Holy Spirit's role, that he intercedes you know, with groanings that can't be uttered, Romans 8, and, uh, and takes our prayers and sort of makes them acceptable and brings them to God the Father. So, But everything that I see in the New Testament is we pray to the Father. So, any other questions? Good question, though. <clears throat> we actually are good on time here. I went really fast because I was rushing to get through all of my notes. So we've got a few minutes. Catherine. Yes. Exactly. And that's the point that I'm making here, is that he is he ever lives to make intercession for us. This wasn't just a one-time, he, he paid the debt, the sacrifice was made at one time. But that sacrifice is applied, Hebrews 10 says, every time that we sin. First uh, John, we have that advocate with the Father. Through Jesus, we can receive forgiveness. And so that's why I'm saying we tend to think of salvation as something that Jesus accomplished back then. You know, he died for our sins, he rose again, and it's all done. But actually, our salvation, the ongoing work of Jesus is vital to our never losing our salvation. Because not only are we forgiven of all of our past sins, but every time you and I sin after salvation, we're continually forgiven because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. So that was one of my, my main goals in teaching this, was to give us a, a better appreciation for the ongoing work of Christ. Because um, I know I kind of had that mentality for a long time, that Jesus did all of that back then, and he's just kind of sitting up there, you know, not really doing anything now. Like, no, <laughs> we're saved just as much by his intercession as we are by his, his sacrifice. <laughs> uh, can you elaborate on that? I'm not sure if I understand. Right. Right. So, so the difference between us and the Catholics is... We read Hebrews. I remember I was sitting down with somebody, I won't say who, uh, somebody several months ago, and, re and I read through this text talking about something really unrelated, about Jesus being our high priest. And, uh, and he, he says to me, what does that mean? We don't need a, a human priest? And I'm like, yes, exactly. <laughs> you got it. Uh, Jesus is our high priest. He intercedes for us. And so we have no need of a human priest anymore. So... Well, what Catholics are doing essentially is um, 
they don't see Jesus as replacing the priesthood. And that's the big difference, where we see Jesus in heaven, he's our high priest, we don't need anybody else. Um, they would read a text like, you know, James 5, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another, as sort of like, well, we also still need human priests, which I think is a stretch, to say the least. But these are all good questions that I hadn't even thought of covering here, so this is good. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I, I want to be careful. I don't think, you know, James 5 does say, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. So there is still an element of church life where I think it is healthy to go to someone, not necessarily your pastor, it can be any Christian, and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me? I think that is a very healthy thing. So I don't want to say, um, you know, we just confess our sins to Jesus and kind of pretend like we're perfect to everybody else. There still is that element there of talking to one another. But we don't need a priest, um, you know, to go between us and, and God the Father. That's what Jesus does. And so we don't need to come every week to confession and, you know, talk to me in some booth and tell me all of your, your problems. And I can't absolve you anyway. Uh, I can pray for you. I can try to, give, you know, help you. But I can't. I have no authority to forgive your sins. Jesus does, because he paid that, that, that sacrifice, and he, he has the authority to apply it. Um, 